The sermon text today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 5. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it had come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. You know, it was uh, during World War II that the Germans... uh, conducted a number of experiments uh, to try to determine what was the best way of exacting information from people. And one of the methods that they saw was the most effective was solitary confinement. To separate a soldier from his platoon or his unit, uh, to keep him away from friends, to keep him away from conversations uh, with those men that he had labored with uh, was the most was the quickest and the surest way to exact information that might profit uh, the German military. And I think in a way we can almost identify with this a little bit, particularly in this COVID crisis when we have um, faced the separation, masks, distancing, limited gatherings. Uh, we're, all, we're all kind of hungering for more uh, fellowship, for more. We haven't experienced confinement like I'm speaking about, but in a, in a smaller measure we have. And it really does speak to not just, not just what COVID has brought to us, but really for many of what many of us walk through, which is just we're alone. Uh, maybe we don't have a lot of friends, and we don't feel like we plug in to, uh, to any sort of group. We're not really welcome. We have this, this longing to be with people. And maybe even in this church, maybe you don't feel as if you, you plug in well here. It's something I've heard in the past. When pastors get together and we talk about these things, uh, oftentimes other pastors will share the same thing, that members of the congregation don't feel like they, they plug in, that they, that they are loved, that they are part of the body. And so I'm thankful for this passage because it really does speak to the nature of what biblical fellowship is. It really speaks to the, the longing that we, we ought to have for other people. Uh, a longing and a laboring. That's kind of the two ideas I want you to think about. Longing, longing to be with people. Paul says even face-to-face and, and, and a laboring. This is, kind of a, this is kind of a two-part little definition of what biblical fellowship is. And that's what we're going to see today. So look with me at the longing. You see this at the end of chapter 2. You, you see Paul longing. Look at 17 and 18 with me. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but 
Satan hindered us. Now, what's interesting here is you, you see this, you hear the eager desire to be together, face to face even. We long. He says, we are torn away from you. And that word actually means to be made an orphan. Now, it can refer to a child being made an orphan by the removal of parents, or it could refer to the parents who feel orphanized because their child has been torn away from them. I mean, can you imagine the pain of that? Uh, to have your child ripped from your hands. Do you think because that child is out of sight that they would be out of mind? No way. I mean, you, you hear the longing Paul has to be with his people. Now, Paul's no clergyman, kind of living in an ivory tower, distant, aloof, intellectual, unapproachable. You see him as someone who has a heart beat for his people and for the people that he preached the gospel to. So you see this longing, you see it really in the next number of verses. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, We pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. I mean, can you imagine? I, I so desperately want to see you. He even uses <clears throat> excuse me, the language in Galatians 4, kind of like a motherly language. I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. you. You hear that longing that he has for people, for other Christians. But, but he doesn't just express his longing here. He also, uh, he also kind of explains his absence. Remember now, Paul is being criticized uh, by these people, these opponents of the gospel, saying, where's Paul? I mean, he came in, he preached the gospel, and now a little heat comes on, he's gone. Where is he? He hasn't come back yet? And they were mocking him, his character, and his teaching because he was absent. So he wants to explain, he wants to fill in the details. And so he says it there at the end of 18, he says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what Satan did to hinder him. And Paul doesn't even explain why he thinks it was Satan. Now, that word hinder would be used in a military context. So if a retreating army was backing up, they would bust up the roads that they were backing up on so that the invading army trying to attack would have to go over all those hindrances and all those obstacles to get to them. So he's saying that Satan has put up these obstacles. But again, we don't know what it is. Now, we know that Paul tried. He said, again and again, I tried. Uh, perhaps... Paul faced such difficulty in trying to make it work that he attributed to Satan because there was nothing else that had such power to stop him from going and thwarting his desires. But in the end, here's what I want to remind you. It doesn't really matter because Paul still got to them. He sent Timothy. He would ultimately, in Acts chapter 20, get back to Thessalonica. God uses even the machinery of Satan to achieve his own ends. The satanic opposition we see here is clearly directed towards thwarting the church from growing together in Christ. He wanted to come and to supply what was lacking. He wanted to come and encourage and establish. And that is what the satanic opposition was against. But again, we don't have to fear that. It's amazing how much the Bible doesn't talk about Satan's power. Why? Because you're supposed to think about Christ's power and God's ability to move even through the machinery of Satan. Here's what Spurgeon said. I, I think it's just, it has such wisdom 
when he preached on this passage, he said, supposing that we have ascertained that hindrances are in our way, uh, the hindrances in our way really come from Satan. What then? I have one piece of advice, and that is go on. Hindrance or no hindrance. In the path of duty as God the Holy Spirit enables you. So press on, and that's what Paul did. So Paul expresses his longing. He explains his absence. But then what he does is he reveals his heart for ministry. In other words, Paul was driven by, he was motivated by a desire for these people to be made perfect in Christ. So look with me at 19 and 20. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I want you to hear Paul there for just a minute because we will pass through those verses and miss the weight of import. He's kind of painting a scene for us. He's saying, at the day of our Lord Jesus' coming. So just picture that day when Jesus Christ returns and he gathers Paul and his missionary friends and he gathers the church. Paul asks the question, what is our hope for that day? What is our joy for that day? What is the glory or the crown of boasting for that day? The answer is it's going to be you. It's going to be the church, you. You are the glory and the joy at that day. Is that incredible? I mean, Paul was so excited to see the church perfected, delivered from opposition, delivered from trials and hardships, and, and, and delivered safely and securely into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what his joy was. That was his motivation of ministry. That was his encouragement. Now, I don't think it was a boasting like a proud boasting of what he had done. I think it's the boasting of like a parent. You know, when a parent sees his child work hard through school, get a good degrees, end up going to a prestigious institution, and, and working hard and graduating and receiving the honors, a parent is, is proud. He, he's, or she is boasting over the accomplishments of the child, not because they did it, but because they're happy for the child. That's the case here. Paul is boasting over the church as it will be when it's with Christ. Now, th this for me, these verses 19 and 20, they're kind of a lens through which I've looked at the past 20 plus years for you that you are our glory and joy. Uh, that, that preparing you and, and serving you and loving you, and I speak for the elder board, I speak for the staff, the motivation, what drives this engine is to deliver you to the degree that we participate in that work, to deliver you to God, happy and satisfied and complete. That's why when people are disgruntled or troubled or leave, it's always hurtful. Because we want to do the best that we can do. You're the glory and the joy. Isn't that incredible? God has so weaved the leadership of a church with the membership of church that we're striving together that we might rejoice when he comes back. And it'd be a great day, a celebration. You know, when Jonathan Edwards, it's amazing. So Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in New England in the 18th century. And uh, many of you don't know this, but he was fired by his church. Big mistake on that one. But they fired him. They fired him over a disagreement about the Lord's Supper. And so on his farewell sermon, he preaches a text that's similar to ours, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is part of it. He says, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us 
and we will boast of you. He's looking at the church that had just fired him. And so full of faith, he says, you're going to boast of me, and I'm going to boast of you. God's so good, he's so faithful, he's going to bring us to these desired ends by his Spirit and for his glory. That's what we have to look for. That's what he's longing for. He's longing for this church to be made perfect and complete. And even though it's going to be up and down along the way, the end is going to be good. So that's what he rejoices over. That's what he's longing for. So to what degree do you find in yourself your own longing to see one another face to face? Again, we've got this COVID deal going. And so we've had masks and separation and reduced uh, size of meetings. We've had to bust the church up into three different services. And we still don't have a third of our people back for various reasons. And so I, we have this sense of longing. We have live stream, which I'm thankful for. Travis and many others have done a lot of work to make that happen. And, and, but, but even though it's serving those most in need, and we're thankful for that, it's still a far cry from seeing one another face to face. You know, when we talk about biblical fellowship, I think a lot of times we just talk about like potlucks and some cordial behaviors and some social environments. That's not what I'm longing for. I don't think that's what he's talking about, a longing for fellowship, seeing face to face. What he's talking about is that we would long to see Christ formed in each other. Uh, we would long for each other to progress in faith and in joy. That we would long to see the activity of God move in the hearts of the people, that they're being changed from glory to glory. That's what I think he's longing for. Paul says it this way to the Philippian church. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in faith. I mean, that, that was Paul's heartbeat, was to, to stay, to be of use to the church. So there's a book some of you have read, Instruments in the Hands of a Redeemer. That's what we're talking about. We're just being instruments in the hands of a Redeemer so that we might play an active role in the promotion of Christ within each other in this church. So that's the idea of biblical, that's what he's longing for. He wanted to supply what was lacking. But there's some challenges to this biblical fellowship. And, and the challenge that we see in the text is satanic opposition. I want you to clearly be aware that, that I believe, I think the text supports it, that there will be satanic opposition thwarting your efforts at working with other people to cultivating Christ in them, to promoting Christ in them. It may come by, by the idea highlighted in your mind, I really don't like that person. I, I don't think I can play a role in their life. Or highlighting in your mind this idea of, well, we've tried before with them and it really hasn't worked. Or they're so different than I am. Or you know what, we, we, we had that row a, a bit ago and we still have yet to fix it. Don't attribute that to these nebulous sort. I think that can be satanic opposition. Challenging us, preventing us from really taking the steps necessary to pour into the lives of one another. But it's not just satanic opposition. It's also just selfishness. We can tend to want to create our own design for fellowship. Uh, we can create fellowship that is easier for us. There are people like us. They think like us. They experience life like us. They're our age. They're our social class. And we create these little pockets of fellowship, and we think that's fellowship. 
But then you look at Paul. Paul here is an intellectual Jew, trained, right? Hebrew language, experiences of Israel, and he is longing to be with a bunch of Greeks, a bunch of untrained, unlearned, non-religious, pagan people, and he is so longing to be with them. He's crossing so many borders and hindrances. I mean, they didn't share the same language. They didn't share the same culture. They didn't share the same history. They didn't share the same religion. They didn't share the same geography. And yet there's that longing across all those hindrances. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I quoted him last week. I'll quote him a couple times today because he wrote this book called Life Together. And it was a book written from his experiences in the underground church in, in Germany at the, at the height of Nazism. And this is where he really came to understand the need for fellowship. And what he was saying, and I'm going to try to interpret it first so it makes sense as I read it, that we have to put to death this illusionment of, this illusion of, of perfect fellowship means like, you know, look-alike people all having the same, the same shared values and, uh, and trying to get past the differences. He says it this way, I think my explanation may be less helpful than his will be, but let me read it to you. He says, by sheer grace, God will not permit us to live, even for a brief period of time, uh, in a dream world where God, is not the, where God is not the God of emotions, but the God of truth. He says, only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. It begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the community. So let me, let me try to draw an analogy. It, it, it's like, so when I was single and I was living with a couple guys, uh, life was easy. I mean, if I were to give you my self-perception, I was easy going, great to be with, a lot of fun, never had conflict. I mean, I really had a harmonious life with myself. It was just lovely, it really was. And then, and then I marry Carol, and Carol comes into my life, and she brings different way of celebrating Christmas. That was a problem right off the bat. It, it was um, different background, different family, different experiences, and all of a sudden, decorate the house differently, eat differently, and all of a sudden these differences began to just cause all this consternation in our marriage and, and trying to work through the gears as they were grinding against each other. And my dream of what marriage was to be was this harmonious live and love and do everything like Tom does. And, and, and that, that was an illusion that had to die for us to become truly one. And, and, and it had to die right there. And the disillusionment and the struggle and the battle that we had, we had to embrace it. You couldn't run from it. We had to embrace it, and then in the embracing of it is what brought us to the joy and the unity that we do have now. So, so that's what he's saying here is a threat to longing for this fellowship is going to be getting over the hindrances of differences within people. But you've got to do it. 
the third threat to this, this fellowship is it just takes a lot of time. You know, it, it's, not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's two steps forward, three steps back. It, it's amazing how difficult it is often to see people be sanctified. It, it's hard. People don't grow fast. You tell them, it's like training your kids to say thank you. I must have said it a thousand times before it came out of their mouth once. You just have to, it's just so slow in changing people. The goal is of what we're going to be, though. If you just look at the incremental changes day to day, you'll be discouraged. But if you look to that day, that's what Paul did, right? He said, he says that you, what is my joy and hope and crown of boasting? at the day of the Lord Jesus? In other words, he was looking to that final day. That's what we have to look at. We can't look at each other just as we are now. We have to look at each other as what we're going to be, that we're participating in what we will be. And again, I just want to give you a, one more quote from C.S. Lewis on this, and I've said it before, but it's probably one of my 500 favorites of his. But He says, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of our own glory in the hereafter. He says, it may be possible. We may think too much of our own glory. Listen to this. He says it's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. The backs of the proud will be broken by this. He said it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most interesting person, fill in the blank right there, you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection power to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, our friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. What he's saying here is our longing for one another has to be tethered to that final day. Otherwise, I think we'll get too discouraged. But looking for what God is going to make us, but it's going to be through us. So this is what Paul's longing for, this kind of fellowship. So let me ask you, would you pray for this with me? I mean, would you pray for one another? You know, each month Lauren sends to you, both in the news update and it's posted on the website, a calendar with all the members of this church by name in the, in the various days of the month. Each day has five to six family names in it that you would just pray for them. This is not a natural event. It's supernatural. So we seek God by His Spirit to do this. So pray. Pray for us on that. Pray for one another. Got a beautiful text on the day I was supposed to be prayed for by a sweet soul who just encouraged us that she was praying for us. You can't, I can't tell you how much that helps in life and to walk uh, to walk in a more godly manner because of that encouragement. So pray. And, and then secondly, would you just self-examine, uh, maybe this afternoon, how much do you want to be involved in other people's lives? And why is it at that level? And, and what degree of effort do you want to be involved? And why is it only at that level? Examine yourself. If all your friend group is just like you, it probably needs to expand a bit. And, and, and then thirdly, uh, and you know what? If you don't have any desire, then just repent and ask God for grace on that. And, and then thirdly, seek Christ. I would rather have you seek Christ than seek community. If you seek Christ, you'll find community. 
Because community, the true community, is centered around Christ. And so if you seek him, you'll run into it. I have no doubt about it. So that's all Paul's saying in these first three, four verses, is to long for one another. He's longing for them, we're to long for one another. But then if the longing is genuine, it's going to lead to labor. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. In other words, we don't obey God so that he loves us. We obey God because he has loved us. And it shows us that we love by our obedience. And so what he's saying here is longing. If I really long for you, I will labor for you. And it's not labor of diligence. It's a labor of love, which was what he commended them in chapter 1, verse 3, that they were filled with labors of love. And so what does this labor of love look like? If we're longing for each other, here's what it's going to look like. He gives us three things. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. So here's, here's Paul. Paul's saying, you know what? I'll face the opposition alone in Corinth. I love this church, this Thessalonian church, so much I'm going to send Timothy up there to establish them. Notice what he calls Timothy. Timothy's not some third-class missionary. He is God's co-worker. He's going with apostolic authority. And what's he going to do? He's going to establish them in the faith. What does that word mean, establish? It means like if I were starting to fall over and one of you would hold me up and prevent me from falling. Timothy's going there to instruct them doctrinally and ethically in terms of this is how Christian... Paul had only been there maybe three weeks to maybe two months, would they, would they remain firm? Would they falter? So he sends Timothy up. Instruct them in the faith. Instruct them in the doctrine of Christ. Instruct them in the cross. And so he did that. Now, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do right here. You know, when Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he said that uh, uh, Paul wrote, him, that is Jesus, him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing, one another with all wisdom, so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul saw the pulpit ministry as one means of maturing you and perfecting you for that great day. But then just two chapters later, he says, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. So it's a pulpit-to-people ministry, but this establishment is a people-to-people ministry. I mean, you are looking to grab a person, you're looking to establish them in the faith. Uh, through spiritual conversation, through Bible study, through discipleship. You're like, how can I establish my brothers and sisters in the faith? How can, I be, how can I be helped by others? We all need to both establish others and be established. So that's the first thing that labor looks like. I am actively and intentionally and sacrificially looking to establish you in the faith. Who are you establishing in the faith? Who are you seeking to do? Who are you seeking to help? But, but secondly, he says he w- sent Timothy to exhort them in the faith. Notice at 2 and uh, really in the 3 and 4, he says, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as come to pass. And just as you know, it's amazing the sensitivity of Paul. 
So he sends Timothy to exhort them so they not be moved by afflictions. And the afflictions that he was talking about probably were you're trying to live a life according to God's glory in a world that doesn't want anything to do with God's glory. So your business environment, your family background, your community involvement, it's all going to be it's going to be at odds at one point, which is going to bring about affliction. He may have also been talking about just the tough rigor of living in this life, just as each year piles up upon the next, how much harder it often seems to live life. But, but he says, he sent Timothy to exhort you in the faith so that you are not moved. That, that idea of being moved is like being set adrift. So you're walking, you, you know, storm's coming into the coast. You walk into the harbor, there's a boat. A boat has a line to a mooring. A mooring is just that buoy on top of the water with an anchor holding it down, and the line is tethered to the boat, and it's holding the boat in the storm. But then the line snaps, and then the boat is just set adrift, and it's driven against the rocks, and it's dashed to pieces. That's what he's saying here. Exhort them in the faith. Even those who are established, exhort them so they're not set adrift that the troubles and trials don't lead us to forsake God or to say that God's not good. And so he sent Timothy to exhort, to encourage them. How does he encourage them? He encourages them by saying, hey, we were destined for this. I'm like, how does that encourage? But it does. It does because it reminds us Satan doesn't have control. Satan doesn't have power. As Ray prayed, God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. Satan doesn't have that same power. Not only that, but suffering isn't random. God is, is taking our suffering and he is conforming us into the image of his son, who also was destined to suffer. We're to encourage each other. We're to exhort each other. I mean, you know how it feels. You're running at the end of a race. You're absolutely out of strength. And then you hear a parent, you hear a friend, you hear a coach just calling you to finish strong. And boy, you hear that noise, and you just press harder, even though you thought you had no resources, you just find a f little bit more. Why do home teams have the advantage, whether basketball or football? Why do they have the advantage? Well, because they've got stands, and those stands are filled with their fans, and their fans are calling out to them and encouraging them. So Paul sent Timothy to exhort in the faith so they, they wouldn't be moved in affliction. That's what we need to do for each other. Uh, who have you exhorted to press on? And maybe you're in a tough spot right now, and you need to be encouraged. How open are your ears to listen to the encouragement of others? And just to stop, and instead of trying to make excuses, just listening to what they say and allowing it to encourage you. In the faith, you may be facing death itself. You need the encouragement of others so that we're not set adrift. And then the last thing he says here, the, the last he sent Paul to establish, to exhort, and, and then to persevere, to help him persevere. Look with me at verse 5. In verse 5 he says, I, sent, I was sent to learn of your faith, I sent Timothy to learn of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. Can't you imagine Paul? He's in Corinth. He's concerned. Had they known enough, will they remain firm? You know, the tempter, uh, Jesus faces this tempter in Matthew chapter 4, but the same tempter was in Genesis chapter 3. And, and Paul is still, because he's still doing his same work of trying to undermine the gospel, trying to undermine both the spread and establishment of the beautiful gospel of Christ. And so he says, I was concerned. I sent Timothy that they wouldn't be moved, that they wouldn't give way. 
that they wouldn't, they wouldn't give up, but they would, they would persevere on. That is a lot of the Christian life, I find, just to persevere, just to continue on. Oftentimes, it's not pretty at all. It, it isn't like this glorious. It, it's, you, know, you see people running in the movies, and they always look, their hair is perfect, they look perfect. You see me running, and you know, air is being pulled in, trees are being drawn. It's not pretty to run the race of faith, but, but, but you run it. And, and that's what he's encouraging to persevere. Why? Because he's afraid people might give up. That's probably the hardest thing in ministry is to see believers who at once were established and then they begin, whether it's through children or through troubles or through trials or through different things, they begin to move to the periphery of the church. And, uh, and we, we talk about this in Elder Board when, when people begin to move to the periphery and then, and then some even just slide off, and they even move to deconverting. You've seen many of those big names deconverting. You know what deconverting is? Nobody is born a Christian. You convert into Christianity, and some deconvert. They step away. They say, I don't really believe as I once believed. This is why we need one another. We need people to, to help us persevere. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need each other. We need the fellowship to encourage one another. Can you imagine not having fellowship? Can you imagine how vulnerable you'd be alone? Again, Bonhoeffer speaks to this. He says, It's easily forgotten that the fellowship of the Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that at any day may be taken from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. He knew that. He experienced that. We don't want to take for granted the fellowship that we enjoy. We want to leverage it. We want to utilize it. We want to enjoy it. So when you hear this, ask yourself, for whom am I laboring? Uh, who am I engaging to seek to establish in the faith? Who am I seeking to exhort? Those that may be facing struggle and they're tempting to drift away. Who are we exhorting? Who are we persevering with? It's not easy. There's a cost. It's inconvenient. You lose control of your schedule. It's, it's difficult. There is no doubt about it. Uh, but, but let me encourage you that the church is to look at that final day, the day of our, our Lord's coming, and what are we going to do to prepare for that? I think this is a perfect text in the days that we live in. Who are we going to be helping along the way? And then I would also say, if you don't, if you don't really have that desire, as I mentioned earlier, then ask God for it. I mean, seek him. Just say, God, why don't I have a desire? Uh, God is more than able to do abundantly beyond all that you can even ask or think. So ask him for grace. Uh, but, but, but don't leave today just thinking, oh, okay, longing and laboring, I get the idea. You know, who, for whom are you longing? And, and how is that longing being manifested in laboring? If you need help with this, if you need direction, if you need encouragement, then ask another member of this church when you're out in the lawn, not on the sidewalk, of course, but you're in the grass, uh, and, and we're going to try to help with this. So um, we're going to kind of make it, we're going to do two things. 
almost forgot this. Um, we're going to do two things. We've asked the care group leaders and we've asked some of the care group members to reach out to those who are unable to, to come to the service. As I said, there's probably over 50 families that have not come back regularly. We understand they have concerns over COVID. That's, that's fine. Uh, but we just want to reach out and let you know we love you and care for them. And so people will be reaching out to them and hopefully reaching out to those who are coming here just to say, how can we pray for you? How can we encourage you? We're in some difficult times. It's just literally trying to walk out this membership covenant that we have with one another, which is that we will check, we will serve one another. And then secondly, uh, for this fall, we're going to be doing something on Wednesday night now. We've always had Bible studies and kids stuff, and COVID has changed all that. So we've got to make a pivot. And so we're going to pivot to start having a Wednesday night service. And it's going to be right in here, right in the sanctuary. Uh, room for 125, but we're going to be Zooming people in. Uh, Brian, thankfully, is gifted in this area. And, and Brian has said that he will help Zoom people in. Not just listening, but even some will be participating. Uh, so it's going to be different than a Sunday morning. It's going to be singing. It's going to be a very brief devotional given by various people in the church. It's going to be a lot of testimonies and a lot of prayer. And, and I, want to I want to remind you, as we go into this election season, this is how we fight the fears, by coming together and reminding ourselves uh, of who God is and, and not worrying about politics, not worrying about these things, but, but really fearing God more than fearing anything else. So, that will start on the 9th of September. So those two things, we're trying to put this text into play. So let's take a moment now and just ask God for wisdom and grace that we might be able to, to walk out the truth of this. Let us not just hear this, but let us hear it and do it. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.